Today's guest is Kat Long, co-founder and CEO of Trace, a company that provides data and software solution in the climate space. Kat was previously a management consultant with us here at Oliver Wyman and then moved to Australia with Macquarie Bank. In 2022, Trace raised a $1.5 million seed round. In this conversation, I get to explore the latest of developments in the climate and sustainability space and how some of the data and software solutions are helping them people make those changes. I'm delighted to be joined today by Catherine Long, who is the co-founder of a company called Trace. So thank you for joining us, Kat. Thanks, Hedden. Great to be here. So just start by brief introduction to the company. It'd be uh, great to hear about what you guys do. Absolutely. So um, Trace is a climate tech platform launched in 2020. We're actually headquartered in Sydney, Australia, but have a global presence. Trace is a software company which is helping small to medium enterprise on the journey to net zero emissions. So really what our goal is to help companies that are getting pressure, not usually from their employees or from their clients or from their investors to start having an active climate or environmental plan. And our technology makes it easy for them to measure, manage, offset their carbon emissions and engage their staff on the journey. And when you say small to medium size, make it real for me. This isn't Uniqlo on the high street, right? Give us, give us some Correct. examples. Yeah. Correct. Although it's, it's amazing how broad it is. I think we started off probably our average um, employee size of the customers in our first year would maybe be sub 50. I'd say now it's more closer to between 100 and 200 because we do have some large retailers on the platform. So really what defines the fact that it's small to medium is not normally a revenue target, it's either a headcount target if they're a service-based industry, or it's to do with the kind of infrastructure they have internally to manage sustainability. And, and depending on which industry they're in, that can actually mean that they're quite large in terms of headcount, but they just haven't invested internal capability to look after climate and sustainability. And trade really um, fills that gap. Interesting. And forgive me, we're hearing about this left, right and centre, right? There's, there's obviously lots of focus rightly in this space. How hard of a pitch or a sell is it when you're approaching these companies? Are they, do they understand the need and looking for solutions? Or talk to me a little bit around how that journey goes. Yeah. Yes, it's a great question. I think it depends where the need comes from. So I mentioned at the start, there's normally three reasons a small to medium enterprise is taking interest and in realizing they need to start having a climate plan. I'd say in the last two years, the biggest pull for most of our clients has actually been their employees going, you know, I want to work for a company that's aligned to my values environment in that space. It's kind of a culture fix as well as an actual, you know, climate fix. But in the last six months or so, and this space is moving so quickly, you've seen kind of standards be released by the ISSB and a lot of com- a lot of countries starting to adopt some of that regulation um, into their reporting requirements, which has meant that large companies are requiring their supply chains or their investee companies to start reporting on climate. So it's becoming an easier sell because I think the why is becoming a lot more urgent. The education is still not there. We spend a lot of time educating customers about what net zero really means, why they should start measuring them today and what the opportunities they have for decarbonisation. What does it practically mean, say I'm a, a CFO or a chief sustainable officer at one of these companies and I've picked up the phone to you or however I'll get in touch with you and I start to explore using Trace? Like, what does that mean or does it look like? 
Yeah, I think what's interesting is the person we're normally speaking to is a kind of side of desk sustainability officer. That's what's um, the common thread across all of our customers. So it might be a CFO, it might be a head of ops, it might be a business manager, it might be the founder who just wants to do the right thing by the company. So these people are really time poor and they don't normally have an environmental degree or anything like that. So we have to just educate them about what carbon emissions are and why they matter and then how they can measure them. So our technology platform is designed to really try and remove the barriers in terms of complexity of measuring emissions. For those that don't know, the data can come from all over the place. You know, what some staff surveys, what are your staff doing to get to work? Travel management companies telling you how many flights you're taking your procurement platform saying where you're spending money, and then, of course, your utility providers. So it's quite a disaggregated data environment. And what we've done is spend three years really trying to make the process of inputting that data as seamless as possible and also catering to very different tech stacks within different organizations. That's awesome. That's awesome. I guess I've heard you use the word measuring the data and the info in the space. What happens when people start to measure? I guess that paints the picture of what's going on. How does that translate into behavioral change? What, what have you noticed when kind of customers like use the platforms in years one and two? Like just, just describe some of that journey for yeah. us. Yeah, great question. So once you've been through the process of getting your carbon assessment, you basically get a pie chart, right? That says, you know, your company has a footprint of 100 tons and here's the profile of that emissions. And there's always some surprises in there. You know, anyone that, does, that reads up in this space won't be surprised that most emissions generally come from your supply chain. But I think those that are less educated don't necessarily realize that actually what they're spending and the services and goods that they're providing, they're buying is actually driving a large carbon footprint. So having that penny drop moment to realize that creating sustainability within your procurement cycle is a very important step to decarbonization is, is one that I hear a lot. The other one is that you often see within offices people really prioritizing waste reduction, which is great. And I'm certainly not here to say, you know, don't try and recycle at all. But generally for most service-based organizations, you know, we're not talking manufacturing companies here. We're talking consultancies or financial services. They're not creating a huge amount of waste, but they're spending a lot of time on it. And I think that's because it's quite tangible and it's something that most employees can kind of get behind and feel like they're making a genuine contribution. So when they then see their pie chart and realize that waste probably only makes up 1% of their emissions, they think, wow, are we really focusing on the right things? And it's usually when they realize that their employees actually have a much larger role to play in terms of their travel behaviors, commuting behaviors, and crucially, the electricity they use at home, particularly if they're hybrid or remote. Very interesting. Very interesting. I must admit, I spent too many minutes stood in front of the waste bins at our offices trying to understand which goes in which, which area color. of recycling. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, I don't know what that says about me or, or how complex that system can get. Um, <laughs> no, the waste movement has worked. People care. Um, now we need to shift our attention to energy and then travel, I think. Talk to me a little bit about, I guess, Greenwashing is a term that's out there. I guess there are some challenges around the role and the value of the data in this space. Given you sit at the heart of it as a practitioner, kind of give us your perspectives on some of that noise that's out there around that. You described it well. It is noise, but a lot of it is justified. I think there has been some examples of greenwashing that has come from a bad place. You know, companies really saying that they're much more environmentally friendly than they truly are just to win clients. But unfortunately, it's been a few bad players that has actually tarnished the rest of the industry because I think 
the majority of companies that are talking about their impact are actually doing so genuinely and transparently. And there's a new term now, I don't know if you've heard it, called green hushing, whereby companies are actually investing in impact and decarbonization and sustainability, and then they're saying nothing about it for fear of being accused of greenwashing, which to me, I think is a bigger risk than a few bad players saying the wrong thing. But the underlying problem here with all of this is a lack of transparency and data and you know, awareness of how to actually talk about this correctly. So, you know, offsetting is obviously something that's come under scrutiny a lot. Again, it's because there's a few bad players out there. There's been a few projects that, you know, have been fraudulent or, you know, not created the impact that they claim to. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean that every other carbon project isn't delivering incredible value. So I think it all comes down to giving people the tools to talk openly and transparently about what they're doing. Interesting. Yeah, I always find the journeys through some of these changes are, are rarely linear, right? I think everyone knows there's a start mm. point and everyone knows there needs to be change. And there's often bumps along the way as as people react and optimize to whatever tasks or goals are put in, in front of them. But um, it'd be good to get your sense yeah. around rolling that clock forward. We're in three, five years time. People are mm-hmm. using Trace or other types of providers and measuring these types of things. Like, what does the world look like at that stage around this around this space? Yeah, I don't know if I'm idealistic, but I like to think that in that, you know, just like people can choose companies they work for based on their Google review or you know testimonials, I hope that there will be such availability of carbon emissions data on every company that you can make it about everything you buy as a business or as a consumer based on their environmental impact. You know, it'd be a five-star review and this company has a, you know, a low carbon score or a high carbon score. That will then allow people to really put money where, you know, aligned to their values and aligned to what matters to them, hopefully climate being one of them. But to do that means that we need mass adoption of carbon measurement. And I think regulation is accelerating that, certainly in those kind of large enterprise end of town and, and the listed spa- listed companies. But I wonder how long it will actually take for that to filter down to supply chains. That's obviously something we're trying to do every single day. And it's moving fast, but it's not, certainly not moving fast enough. And if you had a magic wand... Like what, what do you think that single change or, or, or thing that needs to kind of be better understood to kind of maximize the likelihood of getting to that utopia describes? It does sound like a, a credible end goal. I mean, the magic one would be just really taking off, obviously. Um, I mean, reg- regulation and standardization will help. Because at the moment, the problem is there's a lot of data out there, but it's all completely unreadable by companies. You know, if you're an investor or an asset manager and you're trying to find out somebody's net zero targets or carbon emissions, you've got to filter through pages and pages of reports and and it's all in different formats. So nothing's like for like. So creating standards just like the ISSB has released will really help that. But it's not as perfect as a magic wand because obviously it takes a long time for that to actually be adopted into legislation and then you know used and and take effect i'm afraid i don't have anything that's really going to solve that other than education of the masses so that people start voluntarily disclosing carbon before that they actually have to in based on legislation makes sense keep keep maintaining as a headline issue and maintaining engagement right sounds like it's key to make sure people are mostly invested in uh seeing this as a priority cause um, yeah, I'm going to switch, 
switch gears slightly and rewind the tape. I guess once upon a time, you were a, a consultant at Oliver Wyman, and, and now you're a, a, a co-founder of an exciting business. Talk to me a little bit about the journey that got you into this space and founding your own company. And you seem to have landed in the, the climate space a little bit ahead of the curve from my own reckoning of seeing what's going on. So it'd be great to just hear from you about that transition. In the journey. Yeah, I think everyone's got the benefit of hindsight, aren't they? And they can have a great compelling narrative based on looking back. I think I could I could do that, but I'll just be a bit more frank with it being slightly kind of serendipity, I think. But having come out of management consulting at Olive Wyman, I, I decided to stay in financial services, but I wanted to relocate and just find a new life in a sunnier location. So I ended up at Macquarie Bank, which is the largest investment bank in, in Australia, and actually the largest renewable energy infrastructure asset manager in the world as well. So by working for Macquarie, I was exposed to renewable energy and basically clean tech without really realizing at the time that that's what it was. You know, five years ago, there was no such word as climate tech. Um, It was, I guess, renewable energy was just the term for it. But I loved it and I found it really fascinating because you could apply what I'd learned in finance to, you know, the actually solving a big world problem. So um, that was kind of going on at work. And then on the side, I had always had this inkling and desire to to build something myself. My co-founder and I had had a bit of a side hustle, loved doing it, and eventually decided it was time to pull the plug. So I think combining what I'd learned and seeing that that was something that I was really passionate about and excited to solve on the climate side with my desire to to actually build a company with my co-founder, the two came together. It was you know, it took a while to get off the ground and actually find something that was a legitimate business model. But by kind of mid 2020, we we managed to get Trace launched and, and revenue generating. Amazing. It's amazing. We've got a, we've got a whole range of founders on this show from those who've been going at it since the 90s to those who are more recent. And it's, wow. it's always it's always been a, it's always a little bit of a gamble, a little bit of a leap. And then, as you say, it's always easy to retrospectively tell the story and fit uh, how it all kind of comes together. <laughs> yeah question I ask most of them I'll put to you as well like just talk to me a little bit around some of the pressing challenge or interesting challenge you faced on this this journey how did you navigate it so have a little bit of inspiration for those out there earlier on in their journey who are trying to pick their way through some of this uh, stuff it, it's, it's always it kind of depends what what month you catch me and what's the biggest challenge at the time but I think the common thread throughout the whole journey has been knowing what skills you need when and where to invest in your team, like in terms of, you know, how many people at what time, you know, when you're a venture backed company like Trace, you're always working to a finite amount of cash. Um, And because we're very unlikely to be cash flow positive for a long time, that's just not the current business model. So you're always juggling like where to invest that money and and what skills to bring in, or, or should you be putting it into marketing? Should you be putting it into the software development, or should it be into you know sales salespeople or product people? And that challenge has been very common throughout, but looked very different probably every quarter because you know we've uncovered new clients or new opportunities and new things we want to build, which means we suddenly find ourselves with gaps in the team. Um, so that's definitely the biggest challenge as, as a founder is trying to navigate that and knowing where to place your bets in terms of hiring. Not an uncommon challenge, even <laughs> as you even as you scale. I think uh, there's a lot of bet placing mm-hmm. and, and judgment that, that needs as you, as you go on. Yeah, true. Shifting gears again, I guess one of the other things we'd like to do is just try to shine a little bit of a light outside of just the day job. And it'd be, it'd be great to get from you 
little bit of visibility. What do you do outside of the day job or the professional sphere? Any interests or hobbies and how have they fed into kind of enabling you to be a successful leader of your own company? Yes, I suspect my hobbies have taken a bit of a backseat in the last three years. Uh, I used to be a triathlete. I used to run, cycle and swim all the time. I moved to Sydney in order to be on a beach so I could surf more. Um, I haven't done much of the above for in the last few years, um, you know, not aided by having having a baby, which just, you know, throws another spanner in the works. But I do like to keep fit and that's very important for my mental health. So I, I do just find small windows of opportunities to, to keep fit. But I think I'm also just somebody that's very social and likes to just hang out with friends and have, have a relaxing time. And I actually think that really does play into how I lead and manage people. And I'd say I'm very kind of friendly and approachable as a leader. And what is I'm finding I'm having to kind of learn at the moment is where to find that balance of Sometimes you have to be a bit tough, right? You've got you've got goals to achieve. Things aren't always going the way that you want as a business and trying to strike that balance between building a great culture and environment and being friends with everyone on the team versus actually, you know, putting a bit of fire underneath them is something that I'm constantly navigating and probably not my strengths. And I think that comes from the fact that outside of work, you know, I'm a friendly and um, outgoing person, but I've got to kind of take that discipline, I think, or create some discipline in the workplace. It's really interesting you hearing you say that. I guess there was always this perception at some of the earlier stage companies that there's always this fun-loving tribe and it's kind of on that that journey. But just interesting to hear you point to some of the burn and steel that you need to put in to make sure that there's also the right focus and discipline around that. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, just holding people accountable and, and making sure they're they're very aware of what your expectations of them are, which does not need to be in conflict to having a great time and having that great building that great fun culture um but it does mean you have to have tough conversations and that's not enough in my nature to do that gladly and um look being candid we don't have enough female co-founders or founders on this on this show and you did mention recent motherhood and congratulations on on all of that mm, thanks talk to us a little bit around how you've navigated and juggled being an entrepreneur leading your own company balancing some of those aspects on their personal life, whatever you're open to, to, to sharing about that. Yeah. I mean, I literally feel like I'm sitting in the more traditional male seat and I, and I hate to polarize and kind of st- or stereotype the male and the female role, but you know, 10 years ago, it normally would have been the male that goes back to work quicker and the female that stays at home. But in, in my family, it's been the complete opposite. I've been very lucky to have a husband that has been able to take time off work and spend the first six months with us um, looking after him so that I could return to, to work because, you know, taking a CEO, taking maternity leave is quite tricky. You don't have a replacement um, and you can't afford to bring someone in to lead the business. So certainly having the family structure that allowed me to do that was incredibly important. And this was without much family support either in terms of my immediate family, because I live on the other side of the world. So, you you know, you really do lean into who you have around you. The other thing, and, you know, if anyone's in my boat, whether a, a father or a mother, having an amazing co-founder that you can rely on and trust that, you know, that they will be able to hold the fort while you're gone and, and do so gladly is a privilege. I feel so grateful that my co-founder was able to to kind of hold the fort while I was gone and I had complete faith in her doing so. I feel privileged that I'm going to be able to return the favor later this year to her, which is a, a godsend. Um but yeah, if I if I was just me, if it was if I was a single founder, I honestly have absolutely no idea how I would have done it. So 
yeah, if anyone's considering starting a business on their own with the potential for starting a family at the same time, I would caution against doing it on their own. Interesting. And any, I mean, it's a problem that lots of people are trying to wrestle with, but any any reflections from your perspective? What are some of the changes out there that need to happen to, to kind of make sure there is an improved gender balance around some of the co-founders, founders, people leading, driving these businesses at this stage? I think, I mean, one, one of there's, there's the kind of big leap of actually leaving your job and starting a company. I, I don't, that's a hard one to solve. I think just more role models and examples of women that have done it will hopefully inspire more females to do the same. But I think the bigger hurdle is not just making the decision to go and start a business, but actually then being able to secure the funding to keep doing that. And I still believe there's a big gap in terms of funding that go to, to women. And I do think that comes from two things. One, probably some unconscious bias. Um, on this on the side of the investors, and I think it's getting better, but you you can you only have to look at the numbers to see that most of the money would go to to men and that male founded businesses often get higher valuations. So there's something going on there. But I think then there's also like the the lack of confidence or slash realism that I think women tend to have. I'll give you an example. if if somebody says to me, you know, how big is your company going to be? I could say an enormous number and say I'm going to be a unicorn within five years, but the reality is I'll probably be a bit more tempered in that estimation, whereas traditionally speaking, there might be men out there that would just be more bullish. I think that just is a is a nature thing. And that needs to be recognised. It's not just a gender thing. It's, it's other um, you know, people from other countries, other cultures, or just a personality type. I think investors need to recognise that somebody's communication is, is not necessarily a reflection of the potential of that business or that founder. Um, and that will hopefully help level the playing field a little bit really interesting really interesting and thank you for sharing there's clearly a long way to go on that but just starting to unpick it right like that hour definitely helps final thing from me we like to do on the show is um to kind of throw the spotlight um and invite you to call out a individual or a company probably not your own ideally (laughs) and that's impressing (laughs) you right now that you think others should pay attention to or or look up in around this community so it'd be great to get your your thoughts on that one yeah, I think for me, a company that I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of and based in the UK is is Octopus Energy. So, you know, it's probably, I'm probably not introducing something completely new here, but Octopus Energy is a company I've been watching for some time because not only have they completely disrupted the the energy space for, you know, in the retail market through renewable energy, but they've also now got an electric vehicle offering for staff that means you can salary sacrifice electric vehicles. They've got a venture capital fund that are actually like taking some of that profit and putting it back up into the startup community. And whenever I've talked to anyone from that team, I've just always been super impressed by the level of innovation that they, um, with which they think incredibly approachable. And I just can see from their growth and their acquisitions already that they're going so fast. So that's one that I just aspire, I aspire to be like them. I love their branding. I love what they're doing and their mission. So it's a company that I'm definitely following and hoping we can step into the shoes of one day awesome awesome well look thank you for the uh, the whistle stop tour through kind of hearing what's going on on the front line of climate data from the transitioning from consultant to banking to co-founder and, and juggling all of that <laughs> as a as a female co-founder and mother so thank you for being so generous with your time and your thoughts and uh, for coming on the show thanks for having us this has been good fun take care have a good day